In the 1940s, the Bahamas was something of a tropical paradise for the world's rich. Used as a tax haven and an island getaway far removed from the battlefields of war, it was an idyllic retreat for those that could afford it. Its society had a somewhat darker underbelly, however, with ties to money launderers, smugglers, spies and mobsters. At least, that was how it started to appear in stories after one of the richest men in the world wound up dead in his Bahamian home in the summer of 1943. The fact that all of this happened under the nose of the island's governor, the one-time King of England, Edward, the Duke of Windsor, who was at the time a suspected Nazi sympathiser, made it all the more intriguing, becoming the only story to ever knock the news of the war from the front pages of the Daily Telegraph. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Dark Histories Season 6 Episode 2. I'm Ben, as always. It's good to be back. It's another episode that's come another week late, unfortunately. Um, Somehow I managed to actually catch COVID at last. I thought I was enough of a hermit that I could get away with it but it tracked me down got me in the end but it was it was quite a it was quite a mild mild event so it wasn't too bad really I was I'm all jabbed up and everything so yeah it wasn't too bad I had a a few days where it got a bit rough uh seemed to it was weird actually it was basically I had a runny nose for a few days and I thought oh this is all right and then it got quite a lot worse for a a bit and and then very quickly it cleared up so that was good um, but yeah, I was going to try and record the episode last week because I wasn't feeling that bad um, for most of it. But I just had this really snotty nose and I just thought, I'm, I'm not sure that's what people want to listen to. So I, I kind of waited for my, my the, the, the nose and the throat to clear up and uh, then now I'm back on it. Anyway, enough about that. Let's crack on straight away with the episode because uh, it's quite a long one and there's not a great deal else to say. So yeah, let's go. This is The Unsolved Murder of Sir Harry Oakes. The islands of the Bahamas, spanning some 180,000 square miles of ocean, are a vast, sprawling collection of islets, keys and reefs in the Atlantic Ocean, north of Cuba and southeast of Florida. It perches on the northernmost region of the West Indies. Surrounded by shimmering, cerulean blue ocean, the palm trees and white sands of Nassau, the country's most densely inhabited city on the island of New Providence, contain 70% of the entire population striking a curious juxtaposition between tropical island paradise and modernism, with its traditional clapboard houses, colonial manors and huge cruise port and skyline-defining hotels. It is a landscape that reflects the country's long, varied and colourful past. Colonised first in the 17th century by farmers and fishermen from the Bermudas, who quickly specialised in salvaging the lucrative wrecks from the nearby shipping lanes, Wrecking became such a profitable business to the islanders, in fact, that they soon found themselves running up against the colonialists, who were attempting to salvage their own ships, and this would eventually lead to one of the country's most well-known periods in history, when it operated as something of a pirate republic, after English privateers made the islands their base of operations in the West Indies, bribing governors to turn a blind eye to their presence. At the turn of the 18th century, with the British at war with France and Spain, The islands were attacked by the French-Spanish fleets, which led to a desertion by most of the legitimate settlers and a dissolution of government, allowing the islands to be more or less taken over on a somewhat official basis by the pirates. This fragile republic lasted for 11 years and was home to over a thousand pirates, including some of the more well-known names in history, perhaps most famously Edward Teach, aka Blackbeard. The Pirate Republic was eventually sacked by the British after a pardon offer had been resolutely turned away, leading to the eventual fleeing of dissenters and the acceptance of the pardon bargain for those that remained. Not one to turn away a skilled workforce, the British colonialists then employed many of the ex-pirates, or at least the ones they'd not hung from the trees, to operate for them as privateers against the Spanish, who they were once more at war with. This led to an economic boom that saw the country's capital of Nassau flourish, elevating it from a poor backwater colony with a new fort, streetlights and an ever-expanding sea of housing. Spain was not quite done with the city, however, and captured it once more in 1782, this time for a mere two weeks, 
before American loyalists, exiled from the newly established United States, retook the country for the British and were awarded land grants for their efforts. The loyalists promptly set up an economy of cotton plantations, tripling the country's population in the process, importing slaves from Africa. The plantations were doomed to fail, however, as poor land and crop health worked against the loyalists' profits, who would eventually fade away, helped along in no small part by the 1807 Slaves Trade Act, which saw the British prohibit the slave trade throughout its empire. Following the act, many former slaves were resettled by the British in Nassau and across the Bahamas as free persons. The Bahamas, and Nassau particularly, continued to flourish over the following years, and in traditional form, it was not always through the most legitimate means. Throughout the American Prohibition years, the country's unique geographical position in the West Indies, just 50 miles off the shore of the United States, saw it rise as a central territory in the smuggling of rum and whiskey in scenes that were reminiscent of the Pirate Republic, as bootleggers made the Bucket of Blood their headquarters, gambling on cards until the morning hours. The smuggling reinvigorated the economy through its alcohol duty, which was duly invested into the island's infrastructure. Once Prohibition was over, the economy threatened to revert back to its backwater past. However, the development of infrastructure had seen the islands flourish on another front, as a tourist attraction for the rich and famous, and for those with a more long-term view, as a tax haven for the very wealthiest. With electricity made widely available in Nassau in 1909, a telegraph connection to the outside world, and a weekly steamship line operating from both Canada and New York, tourists shuttled to the islands, where they stayed in one of the newly built, somewhat ambitiously sized hotels. Whilst the onset of the Second World War threatened stability with the reduction in general tourism, the island's population was bolstered by those that sought to isolate themselves from the fighting. Among the many that migrated to the tropical climes, white sands and deep blue seas, was a man named Harry Oakes, a fantastically rich gold miner who had sought to protect his vast income from the unfortunate burden of tax. Oakes poured huge sums of money into the local economy through his ambitious building projects and almost single-handedly kept the country afloat through his investments. It had been a plan that seemed to pay off for him quite well, at least until he was found murdered in the bedroom of one of his many manors. It was 7am on the morning of 8th of July 1943 when Harold Christie stepped across the hallway of the large Westbourne Manor House on the outskirts of Nassau. Westbourne had been the favoured home of his good friend Harry Oakes, one of half a dozen that he owned on the island, and the night before Oakes had held a dinner party with the socialising going on well past midnight. As was often the case after a night of partying at Westbourne, Christie had stayed overnight in one of the 15 guest rooms, just down the hall from where Oakes himself was sleeping. The night had passed by with a terrible storm. Rain had lashed down and thunder and lightning had ripped across the island, sending tremors through the ground. Though, thankfully, that morning was fresh and clear. The storm had blown over, and with the humidity yet to rise to its usual torturous summer levels, the morning was nice. Bleary-eyed and unsuspecting as he was, Christie paid no mind to the dark grey smudges on the blisteringly white walls. He knocked on Oakes' bedroom door and called out in order to rouse his sleeping friend and business partner. That morning, he and Oakes had made plans to speak to a pair of local journalists about their plans for a sheep farm on the island. During his time in the Bahamas, Harry Oakes had invested heavily in the local infrastructure, building up a country club and golf course which lay next door to Westbourne, an airport, hotels, as well as in critical infrastructure, creating jobs, food and housing for the locals at a time when it needed it the most, suffering as it was after the boom years of prohibition. Christie had helped Oakes all along the way. Rumoured to have made a fortune smuggling rum in the 20s, he had turned to real estate shortly after and Oakes had been one of his best clients. With no reply coming from Oakes' bedroom, Christie pushed open the door and stepped into the room, taking in, with a spinning shock, the burned carpet on the floor, the ash-stained and blistered Chinese screen that stood separating two beds, the nearest of which was now a blackened skeleton of burnt wood, upon which lay Oakes, his body charred and covered in feathers from the incinerated pillows. 
Though he had died a British citizen, Harry Oakes was born in Sangerville in Maine in December of 1874. The third of five children, he had a comfortable upbringing on the family's 110-acre homestead. His father, William Pitt, had worked as a prosperous lawyer and later as a surveyor, and his mother, Edith Nancy, was a schoolteacher. He attended Foxcroft Academy, a private prep school in Maine, before going on to study at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, a small but very well-respected private liberal arts college from which he graduated with full intentions of moving on to medical school. However, in 1898, at the age of 23, he decided the time was right for him to step away from the books and seek a fortune in gold. Following in the footsteps of thousands before him, he took off north towards the Canadian Yukon, where a gold rush had kicked off the year prior after local miners had struck rich. Following an already well-beaten path, Oakes moved to Skagway in Alaska, where he worked as a medical assistant, working his way down the Yukon River towards Klondike. It was the start of a journey that wound up consuming the next 15 years of his life, as he skipped from town to town, country to country, from Dawson City in Canada to the Philippines, Western Australia, New Zealand, and then finally back to Death Valley in America, learning and practicing the skills of mining and prospecting all along the way. It had been a long road for Oakes, who, try as he might, had failed to strike it rich, just like so many others, and had found himself sleeping under the cold night sky, wrapped in a tarp, dreaming of his first big find. He was already 37 when he wound up in the area of Kirkland Lake in northern Ontario in 1911. He'd staked a claim in a tract of land titled T1663, partnering with the Tufts, four brothers who had already secured a contract to build a road through the land. The Tough Oaks mine would soon strike gold and go on to repay Oaks for all of his hard work and then some. Within a year, it was one of the richest mines in Canada, churning out more than 100,000 tonnes of ore a month. Not one to rest on his laurels, Oaks sold shares in the mining company in order to buy up more land around the lake, eventually building a further three more mines under the Tough Oaks partnership. Oaks's lake operation had come with certain engineering challenges but had soon proven worth the investment as it grew to become the second richest mine in all of North America. In 1915, Oakes became a citizen of Canada for business purposes and in 1923 he married Eunice McIntyre, an Australian whom he met aboard a ship bound for South Africa where he was scheduled for a meeting with a mining tech company. No sooner had the ship made port had Oakes proposed marriage, which the young 24-year-old accepted. Naturally, for a man as rich as he was, no eyebrows were raised at the fact that she was less than half his age. They went on to build a family, having five children, Nancy, Sidney, William Pitt, Shirley and Harry Jr., and lived in property all around the world, though they eventually settled in England in the disgustingly rich, gated neighbourhood of Kensington Palace Gardens, rubbing shoulders with London's wealthiest. Oakes gave huge sums of money to local causes, helping to build hospitals, for which he was rewarded with the title of baronet on the King's Honours birthday list the following year for his philanthropic work in the country. Now, Sir Harry Oakes, he had the title to match his wealth, though his dress sense never seemed to quite catch up and he was known to stride through London in his mining get-up, muddy boots and all. By the mid-1930s, Oakes had had just about enough of the taxman. Having recently met Harold Christie, it hadn't taken much to convince him to begin purchasing land in the Bahamas at an alarming rate, eventually totalling almost a third of the entire island of New Providence. He set up companies within the Bahamas, sold them his shares for the mine, and then bought shares in the new companies, allowing himself to cash a comfortable dividend. When a man has money, he told a newspaper in 1939, he has to keep two jumps ahead of the people trying to take it off of him. It was a quote that went down like a ton of bricks as the Canadian press hit back with headlines calling him a champ tax dodger. Along with Westbourne, he built several other large houses around the outskirts of Nassau as well as a penthouse in the British Colonial, a hotel in Nassau that he had reportedly bought on the spot after they had turned him away for not meeting the dress code. When he wasn't buying up vast tracts of land and working on development projects, he would most likely be found on the golf course that he had recently built. By 1943, he was estimated to be worth over $200 million, and though that figure was somewhat skewed, 
he was almost certainly one of the richest men in the world, with a net worth of many tens of millions of dollars. Colonel Arskine Lindop, the Bahamas Commissioner of Police, had taken the call from Christie that morning, reporting that Harry Oakes had been found dead in his bedroom. It was barely past 8am, and the day had not even started. The colonel contacted Major Herbert Pemberton, the head of the Bahamas CID, who had shown up to the scene and documented his findings. Throughout the hall, on the banister and on the bedroom door that led to Oakes's body, were soot marks. The carpet in the room had big, dark burn marks, and the bed itself was a charcoal mess. Between the two beds was a bedside cabinet, complete with Oakes's dentures, reading glasses and a lamp. A fancy-looking Chinese screen stood between the beds in the room. At one time, it would have been a handsome antique, but it now stood burnt, its lacquer bruised and blistered, its delicate pattern still remaining in places, peeking out from beneath the ashen stains on its surface. There were several dark marks on the wall that looked like potential handprints, and at the foot of the bed, a fan turned serenely, blowing the feathers that covered Oakes's body in its calm, rhythmical breeze. Oakes himself was barely recognisable from the waist up. His head was badly injured. There were four large wounds, likely from some blunt instrument that had shattered his skull, leaving a trail of blood across his face. The burns on his body spread up from his abdomen and across his chest. When Christie had found the body that morning, he told Pemberton he had tried to rouse Oakes, turning him over and offering him a glass of water, but it was already far too late. That's when he had called it in to the police. Oakes's death was bad news for the Bahamas. He was one of the richest men in the world, and news of his death, especially given the circumstances, was sure to travel fast. In fact, the news had already reached the governor, who had been a good friend of Oakes, playing golf with him at the Oakes's country club whenever the two had spare time. Fearing for both his own reputation, as well as that of the Bahamas, the governor had decided to act swiftly. No ordinary politician, the governor of the Bahamas was the Duke of Windsor, Edward Albert Christian George Andrew Patrick David, better known as Edward VIII, the former King of England. Edward had served as king for only 11 months before he'd abdicated the throne in order to marry his wife, Wallace Simpson, a twice-divorced American who was most certainly not approved of by neither the government nor the church. In 1937, the Duke had toured Nazi Germany, meeting Hitler and throwing Nazi salutes, which, as can be expected, went down about as well as his divorcee American bride back home in England. Making matters worse, he publicly supported appeasement with Germany after the outbreak of war, which, despite it being a call for peace based on his own experience of combat during the First World War, was seen to be further proof of his Nazi sympathies. In an effort to push him out of the limelight, he was given the position of governor of the Bahamas in 1940 and shipped off aboard a steamship bound for New York that had been specially diverted in order to drop the Duke off, far away as quickly as possible. The Duke never confessed to holding Nazi sympathies and publicly denied all accusations that he was pro-Nazi, though this was somewhat undermined when he later told a friend, I never thought Hitler was such a bad chap. With the Bahamas, already thin police force spread out across the various islands as it was, the Duke decided to take matters into his own hands. He sent a telegram to the Miami police requesting their help in the murder investigation insisting that Captain Edward Melchon, whom he had met before during his visits to the States, should come to Nassau and take over the lead. He then sent a telegram to the colonial office in London to report the news. Deeply regret that Sir Harry Oakes has met violent death under circumstances which are not yet known. Hope to obtain expert advice of Chief of Miami Detectives immediately to assist local police. Will telegraph further. He wrapped up his morning's work by then forbidding any more telegrams to be sent from the cable office in efforts to keep the murder on the down-low for as long as possible. Unfortunately for the Duke, Etienne de Pouche, the editor of the local newspaper the Nassau Daily Tribune, had been scheduled to meet with Oakes that morning for a conversation about the sheep farm, and when he'd rung ahead to confirm the appointment, the phone had been answered by a panicked Christie who had spilled all about the murder. De Pouche had beaten the Duke to the punch and had sent a telegram to the Associated Press immediately. The following day, the news was printed across the world, including in Britain, 
where the headline knocked the Daily War stories off the front page of the Daily Telegraph for the first and only time in the entire war. Later that day, Captain Edward Melchon, the head of the Miami Homicide Bureau, and Captain James Barker, the head of the Miami Police Labs, boarded a plane after a rushed morning packing their equipment. When they landed at the Oaks Airport, they made their way to Westbourne, where Melchon immediately began questioning the police on the scene, along with the house staff. Barker acquainted himself with the crime scene, however, due to the high humidity, was unable to begin any fingerprinting, work that was something of his speciality. At 3.30pm, the body of Oakes was finally removed and hustled off to the mortuary to be embalmed, ready to be sent to America, where his wife had been staying on an extended holiday. The police's initial suspect was also the most obvious, that being the man who had discovered the body, Harold Christie. Christie had been asleep just 20 yards down the hallway from Oakes, yet he had claimed to police that he had not heard any commotion coming from Oakes's room the night before and had no knowledge of the attack at all until he had entered the room after calling on him that morning. The problem was, Christie didn't really appear to have any motive. In fact, it was really quite the opposite. Christie had been a good friend of Oakes, and Oakes had, in turn, been one of Christie's best clients. It was hard to see a benefit for his death, at least at these early stages of the investigation. A second suspect turned up just after lunch, however, and this one, the police quickly accepted, was far more promising. Count Alfred de Marigny was Harry Oakes' son-in-law, having married his eldest daughter, Nancy, a year earlier in 1942. The police instantly found de Marigny an interesting character, something of a fantasist, He was born Alfred Foucault in 1910 on the island of Mauritius to well-off French parents who owned a sugar plantation in a British colony. He'd assumed the title of Count, a hereditary Mauritian courtesy title from his mother's side of the family, just as he took his mother's maiden name. In his two published memoirs, the stories of his life are as exotic as they are, more often than not, fictional. Truthfully, however, was the fact that he had been married twice before he had met Nancy, and both of his ex-wives had been of fine stock with money behind them. When he married Nancy, two days after her 18th birthday in 1942, in a church in the Bronx, it was in complete secrecy from her parents. One could imagine that this was not exactly happy news for Sir Harry Oakes, who tried to buy him off at the first opportunity. In his favour, however, De Marigny turned down any offer Oakes made and at the same time signed an agreement renouncing any claim he may have over Nancy's inheritance. This appeased Harry for a time and things appeared to settle, with Oakes offering to employ De Marigny in one of his finance companies, though the offer was turned down. It was when the couple went off to Mexico for their honeymoon that things started to go awry. Nancy caught typhoid and shortly after fell victim to the very graphically named disease of trench mouth an inflammation of the gums that eventually ate through her upper jaw, leaving her in need of reconstructive surgery. De Marigny nursed her throughout her fevers, however Nancy's mother, who had still harboured a certain degree of resentment toward him for their secret marriage, had received a letter from his ex-wife that heavily insinuated that all of his money had come from her, and that when he had married Nancy, both she and Nancy had been pregnant with his children. No children were born from either supposed pregnancy, so whether or not the allegations were true is unclear, but the damage had been done and the situation only worsened after Nancy really did fall pregnant in 1943. Due to her poor health, suffering as she was from life-threatening fevers, her parents arranged for her to have an abortion without running the idea past de Marigny himself, whom they now considered a sex maniac. With family tensions reaching their peak, heated arguments became a regular fixture between Oakes and his son-in-law, and there were several witnesses who could attest to having seen the pair shout at each other in wild rages, threatening one another with various physical beatings. Pretty quickly, the American police, hanging around in Westbourne, decided that de Marigny was now their prime suspect. De Marigny had a lot to gain from his father-in-law's death, and seemed to not like him at all. He had a certain degree of form, at least having already divorced two wealthy women, and making off with a good deal of cash from the bargain. After they questioned him, they also discovered he had the opportunity. The night before, de Marigny had held his own dinner party in his house just outside Nassau. At 1am, he had driven home two of the guests, Jean Ainsley and Dorothy Clark, 
the wives of a pair of local RAF men, and then driven home alone. The problem for Damarini, and the delight for the police, was that the autopsy results had returned from the mortuary, and the estimated time of death placed Oak's murder at precisely the time Damarini had dropped the women at home, just 100 yards from Westbourne, and there didn't appear to be anyone around to provide him with a suitable alibi. That evening, whilst drinking in a bar in the Prince George Hotel in central Nassau, the police picked him up and took him back to Westbourne, where he was greeted by Captain Melchon. Melchon asked Damarini to roll up his sleeves before he pulled out a magnifying glass and began inspecting his hands and arms. Declaring that he had found several spots of burnt hair, he asked Damarini to explain himself, and though he had a pretty straightforward explanation, saying that the night before, whilst throwing his dinner party, he had lit a pair of table lamps and the flames had licked up the glass holders and along his arms, and that he had also had a bonfire on his farm that same day, Melchon promptly handed him over to Barker, who took a set of fingerprints, and then the pair took him home, where he was asked to produce his clothes from the night before. De Marigny could only show him a suit, freshly cleaned, and point them in the direction of a vast pile of shirts and ties lying in a laundry basket, saying that he was unable to remember exactly which combination he had worn. By now, it was past midnight, and so Melchon and Barker left Lieutenant Douglas with De Marigny for the night, instructing him to keep him under close observation, and to bring him to Westbourne first thing in the morning for further questioning. The next day, Barker and Melchon resumed their investigation at Westbourne. With the weather proving more amenable to taking fingerprints, Barker busied himself upstairs, whilst Melchon greeted de Marigny upon his arrival and took him aside to continue his questioning. After lunch, de Marigny was released and Barker took himself off to the RAF lab in order to analyse his prints, whilst Melchon had an impromptu meeting with the Duke, who had rolled up at the house that afternoon. At 6.15 that evening, Lieutenant Douglas picked up de Marigny in the hotel bar once more, taking him again to Westbourne. This time, however, it wasn't simply to be questioned. Upon his arrival, Melchon and Barker arrested him for the murder of Sir Harry Oakes and locked him up in the local jail for the weekend, whilst he awaited his arraignment on Monday morning. With the arrest of de Marigny, the press lit the story on fire. Harry Oakes's body was flown to his hometown of Dover-Foxcroft in Maine, where he was buried at the Larry Funeral Parlours. In the town, all business was suspended for an hour at noon. Meanwhile, both Alfred and Nancy gave separate press interviews, the Count firmly denying any guilt, and Nancy backing her husband. Didn't murder Oakes, Count protests from Nassau prison cell. Count Alfred de Marigny, sprawling on a hard cot in his bare Nassau prison cell, denied vehemently today that he murdered his multimillionaire father-in-law, Sir Harry Oakes. I have told the police everything I know, he told the United Press. I have nothing further to say now. I am not guilty. The Count looked calm and even somewhat cheerful, but the prison superintendent, Captain Reginald M. Miller, said he had been restless throughout his first night in custody. Count de Marigny is one of 160 prisoners in the 130-cell prison, which is surrounded by a 15-foot stone wall. Most of the other inmates are petty thieves. Gossip reigned supreme. Stories flooded from the bars in Nassau straight to the headlines with scandalous effect. Some suggested that the reason Lady Oakes had not been in Nassau and had so resented her daughter's marriage to de Marigny was down to the fact that she herself had been having an affair with the account. Baseless as they may have been, they only fueled the fire for a murder that was made for the headlines. The Count, with all his pretensions, was the perfect Gatsby-esque figure, and with the inclusion of one of the richest men in the world, and the Duke of Windsor, it was a match made in heaven. In Nassau, the public opinion on de Marigny's guilt was generally pretty well split. The younger population tended to side with him almost universally, however, the older, more conservative population damned him almost immediately. From this side of the island, they had already been hearing rumours of his playboy socialite lifestyle for years, and so it didn't take much for them to consider him guilty on principle. The Duke, unsurprisingly, sided with the more conservative of the population, writing his feelings on de Marigny in a letter to the British Colonial Office, with whom he had already written to in order to ensure that his involvement, bringing in the American detectives, had been duly noted. De Marigny, who is a despicable character and has the worst possible record, 
morally and financially, since his adolescence, has insidiously bought his way with his ex-wife's money into the leadership of the influential, fast and depraved set of the younger generation, born of bootlegging days, and for whom they have an admiration bordering on hero worship. This unsavoury group of people would therefore like to see de Marigny escape the rope at all costs, whether guilty or innocent. The preliminary review and inquest had been rolling along in the background, fairly routinely, being adjourned whilst the police sought further evidence and witnesses, with few facts leaking out, aside that the official cause of death had been the four blows that Oakes had suffered to the head, one of which had pierced his skull by his left ear, which was inflicted by a hard, blunt instrument with a defined edge. The burns had made an exact time of death difficult, though all the medical experts involved had agreed that he had been set on fire prior to his death. One of the more wild theories that sprang up in the void of legitimate information was the suggestion that the murder had been a ritual voodoo killing due to the presence of feathers that were found scattered across the body. In reality, the feathers had come from a burnt-up pillow whose case had spilt its contents onto oaks. However, it was much more interesting to credit it to a superstitious occult ritual. Finally, on the 31st of August, the court ruled de Marigny to stand trial on the 16th of October for the murder of Sir Harry Oakes. Ten days before the trial began, Harry Oakes's will was published. His widow inherited a third of his estate, which, despite being huge, was smaller than most people expected. The other two-thirds was split between the five children. However, a recent change, directly inspired by Nancy's marriage to de Marigny, had altered it so that none of them would benefit until the age of 30. At 10.30am on the 16th of October, Sir Oscar Daly, Chief Justice of the Bahamas, sat down in front of a packed courthouse to oversee the trial of de Marigny. Wooden benches had been brought in especially for the spectators who were, for the most part, journalists that had flocked to the Bahamas, staying in the Nassau hotels that had doubled their room prices in expectation of their arrival. The jury was selected by a lottery, with numbers being drawn from a box, and then the prosecution, led by Attorney General Hallinan, laid out its line of attack, suggesting that de Marigny had murdered Oakes for revenge, satisfaction and for gain. De Marigny and Oakes had quarrelled frequently and evidence had been uncovered that de Marigny was in desperate need of money. His ex-wife had been writing to him demanding money and according to his accountant, he was more or less broke. In dramatic fashion, he made his accusations to the jury. Murder is murder and a life is a life, but this murder is, as Shakespeare, the immortal bard says in one of his sonnets, as black as hell and as dark as the night. In its foul conception, a deed which could only originate in a depraved, strange and sadistic mind. A mind indeed. A mind which is foreign to the usual mind which comes before this court with a complete disregard for humanity in so vile a murder which besmirched the name and peace of this tranquil land. Although they could not be sure what the liquid was that had been used to ignite Oakes in the attack, and although they had heard a witness say that they had seen Christie driving through central Nassau at midnight, when he had said that he was asleep. De Marigny was, they ensured, near the house at the time of the murder, had burnt arm hairs the day following, and most damningly of all, and the central point to both the arrest and the trial, was that Barker had pulled his fingerprint from the Chinese screen between the bed. The first days of the trial saw Harold Christie on the stand, where he described finding the body on the morning after the murder. He told the court that his decision to stay the night at Westbourne had been spontaneous after the dinner party, as had his call to his driver when he had asked him to bring the car to the house, in case he and Oakes needed it the next morning. He ensured the court that the car had been concealed down the road from the house, his reason being that he didn't want its presence known to the guests so that he would not have to drive them all home after the party, and that despite what any witnesses had said, he had most assuredly been in bed, asleep at midnight, not out driving through Nassau. The defence was, with their questioning, hoping to divert suspicion away from de Marigny and instead onto Christie. He was, after all, the police's original suspect. In the days following his testimony, rumours began to swirl around Nassau. Though they remain rumours, they do go some way to explaining Christie's behaviour in court, where he had been posed an awkward problem. He was, it was suggested, lying, in efforts to shield a woman named Effie Heniage, whom he was having an affair with. 
Effie had been at the party that night and returned home with all of her other guests. However, Christy had planned to visit her at home later that night, which was the real reason that he had had his car brought to the mansion and the reason that he was said to have been seen driving through Nassau. It would also have been the reason that he had not been able to hear anything of the attack that night, for he had simply not been there. Interestingly, if the rumours were true and Christie had exposed the affair in court, he would have at the same time given himself the perfect alibi to the murder. By lying in order to protect both himself and Effie from the publicising of their affair, he simply continued to bring suspicion onto himself. The real show began, however, once the police began taking the stand, starting with Pemberton, who immediately admitted that he had never seen the central fingerprint from Damarini on the screen at all. Furthermore, the police had acted shoddily in other areas, failing to get warrants whilst they searched Damarini's farm for a murder weapon and bungling evidence without the permission of the defence. The defence made short work of Pemberton, aiming to outline him as an incompetent local policeman who had been pushed aside by the American detectives and with no real authority or responsibility on the case. In the press, who had been following the trial, printing day-by-day blows of the account, more stories concerning Christie began to float out, including the uncovering of his rum-smuggling past. The trial continued, with DeMarini laying out his own alibi when he told the court that he had gone up to the door of his childhood friend and housemate, Marquis Georges de Vissolo, after returning home from dropping off the two RAF wives, in order to offer to drive his girlfriend home, as he had known that de Vissolo had left the party earlier that evening feeling ill. Later that night, around 3am, he had been awoken by his friend's cat and his own dog fighting. At the same time, he heard de Vissolo's car starting, apparently in order to drive his girlfriend home. When the car returned 15 minutes later, de Marigny called out to his friend, asking him if he wanted to take the cat into his own room. If the story were true, then it gave de Marigny a witness to his alibi. He then went on to tell the court that his marriage was one of love and that he was already a wealthy man when he had met Nancy and had never seen her as a means to a financial boost. In fact, he was not even nearly as broke as the prosecution had been trying to make out and he said that he had plenty of money though much of it was tied up in property and investment, so it was not seen by the accountants who had investigated his liquid capital. His quarrels and threats to Oakes, he said, were all just casual remarks, and that when his relationship with Nancy's parents had soured, it was always Oakes who had brought any anger into the relationship, not himself. The prosecution hit back at him, mainly pushing to smear his character, pointing out his nonsense title and his efforts to tie up his finances in investment in order to appear poor so that he could squirm out of making any payments to his ex-wife. Overall, his time on the stand left a relatively favourable impression on the public and the press were keen to back many of his claims in headlines. Problems arose when de Vissolo himself took the stand and the prosecution pointed out that in his earlier statements to the police, he had never said that he saw Domarini on the night of the murder, which he did actually admit to, only later backtracking, using the excuse that he spoke French as a first language and had been flustered by the questioning. Whilst it had been true, he said, that he had not seen him on the night of the murder, he ensured the court that he had heard him call through the door. The real excitement of the trial, however, came when Melchon and Barker took the stand. Melchon had already told the court that morning about how Damarini had told Lieutenant Douglas during the period he was watching over him of how he had called Oakes a stupid old fool and how he thought he deserved to be murdered by someone anyway. And he had also asked if a British court could find someone guilty, even if no murder weapon could be found. Whilst it looked pretty damning for Damarini, it was all undermined when the defence called into question the veracity of the police's star turn, the fingerprint evidence. The defence largely focused around the fact that the print had been lifted from the screen, with no evidence of it actually ever having been on the screen at any time. At first, they pointed out how, according to statements, Melchon had had no knowledge of the fingerprint evidence at all, until the 20th of August, a full 11 days after de Marini's arrest. When he was asked if he found it peculiar that no one would have mentioned the fingerprint to him, given its importance in the arrest, he was left with little choice but to concede the point. When the defence pushed him on why he had not mentioned anything about it before, Melchon could say nothing other than that his memory had been at fault and that he had made a mistake. 
It was not really how the prosecution would have wanted the day in court to wrap up. And despite Meltron changing his story the very next day, saying that he had been confused and that he had known of the fingerprint, it all seemed highly dubious. There were also questions about when de Marigny had actually touched the screen, and despite Melton's best efforts to ensure the court that he had never had any opportunity to touch it during his time at Westbourne whilst he was being questioned, it came to light that there had in fact been a 45-minute window where de Marigny was upstairs in the room alone with Melton. If things were looking bleak, they only got worse when Barker took the stand and was asked to point out exactly where on the screen the fingerprint had been taken from. Due to its ornately patterned nature, the defence, who at some expense had spent some time in New York studying fingerprints to prepare for the trial, now pointed out that if the fingerprint had been taken from the screen, it would surely have picked up some of the pattern at the same time, which it clearly did not do. When Meltram was handed a strip of paper the same size as the lifted print and asked to find where on the screen the paper would fit without picking up any pattern, he was unable to do so. When he was asked why no photograph had existed of the print on the screen, Barker explained that he had packed in such a rush for his trip to Nassau that he had simply forgotten to bring the correct camera with him. Asked why he did not borrow one from the RAF lab, he had no answer. The insinuation from the defence was clear but fantastically serious. They were, without making any direct accusations, digging at the idea that the print was inserted into evidence after being fraudulently lifted. By the end of the questioning, the defence had, in fact, completely stopped with their insinuating and they outright accused Barker of falsifying evidence after Morris O'Neill, a supervisor in the New Orleans Identification Bureau and an expert on fingerprinting, had been called in to testify that he had never known a case allow evidence of a single lifted print without any other backing of its original position and that he had found the print to be almost too perfect. The defence suggested the reason for that was that it had come from the set of fingerprints taken from de Marigny during his initial questioning. One of the final witnesses was Nancy Oakes herself, who told the court of how her marriage to de Marigny had been a happy affair and of how he had offered to sign a prenuptial agreement prior to their wedding, removing him of any right to her inheritance. The closing speeches were lengthy, drawn-out affairs. Higgs for the defence making his case for the better part of a day until, eventually, the jury stepped out to make their deliberations at 5.27pm. It took them just shy of two hours to finalise their decision, re-entering the courtroom at 7.20pm, where they promptly delivered a verdict of not guilty, though they did recommend that de Marigny be deported from the islands at the earliest opportunity. Acquittal of de Marigny leaves Oak's murder unsolved mystery. Marquis and wife celebrate verdict with a wine dinner. Alfred de Marigny is a free man today, and the mystery that surrounds the slaying of Sir Harry Oakes is more baffling than ever. A Bahamas Supreme Court jury decided by a 9-3 vote last night that it was not de Marigny who beat the millionaire on the head last July 8th and set fire to his bedroom and bed in an apparent effort to hide the crime. A reporter asked Attorney General Eric Hallinan whether a new investigation will be started. Nothing as far as I'm concerned, he replied. It's completely closed. Call it a day. In the days following the trial, the local Nassau Council gathered and voted to follow up on the jury's recommendation to turf de Marigny out of the Bahamas, though they at least allowed him to leave on his own steam. He eventually left for Canada, and his marriage with Nancy was eventually annulled in 1949 on the grounds that his first divorce had been improperly granted. Their marriage despite Nancy's protestations in court, had not been going quite as well as she had led the public to believe, and she had been having several affairs before, during and after the case, one with Jack Hemingway, the son of Ernest, who had been a friend of the family. He remarried in 1952 for the fourth time to Mary Morgan Taylor and settled in Texas in relative anonymity. Nancy, on the other hand, remarried twice more, the first time in 1952 to a German aristocrat, which afforded her the title of Baroness. They divorced shortly after, and she eventually married for the third and final time in 1962. The Duke of Windsor resigned as governor in March of 1945, moving to France, where he and his wife lived out the remainder of their lives in retirement. Harold Christie continued making money in property development, 
eventually marrying in 1959 to a bride 20 years his junior. He died in 1973, just two months after the Bahamas were granted independence. Over the years, the theories as to who had killed Sir Harry Oakes were many and varied, several with a healthy dose of conspiracy stirred into the mix. In 1950, George Boyle, a Californian shoemaker, confessed to the crime, which he said he had committed whilst on a drunken fishing trip. Naturally, it was a story entirely without merit. Several people claimed to know who the killer was over the years, though no names were ever put forward. Officially, the case may have gone cold, but it did leave numerous questions up in the air, not least of which was who had killed Oakes in the first place. But also, if the police had falsified evidence, as de Marigny had accused them of doing, then why had they done so? Who had wanted to frame him? And for what purpose? One of the more conspiratorial theories, with many branches, suggests that the Duke of Windsor had pushed the police into arresting de Marigny for a multitude of reasons, from wanting to close the case up quickly to a matter of personal revenge. Like several of the theories that cast de Marigny as innocent, all of those theories generally focus on the falsified fingerprint as evidence that de Marigny was framed. De Marigny himself believed that it was the Duke that framed him, and he wrote of his beliefs both in his memoirs and in personal letters to friends and family. One reason that the Duke may have attempted to frame de Marigny was down to money. Either that the Duke owed Oakes money and wanted him dead, possibly even having him assassinated, and in these cases, anyone would have done really, but de Marigny was a convenient subject with enough suspicion behind him to reliably frame him. In other theories, the Duke was involved in a complex investment scheme in a Mexican bank alongside Oakes and Axel Venegren, a Swedish multimillionaire owner of Electrolux and suspected Nazi sympathiser. Venegren apparently had used his 320-foot-long private yacht that he had bought from Howard Hughes to smuggle both the Duke's and Oakes's investment money out of the Bahamas. Thus it follows that the Duke wanted the case wrapped up quickly and fuss-free, so to avoid anyone digging too deeply into either men's accounts and uncovering the truth. Whilst it was true that the Duke had been involved in investment projects with both men, and further that Venegren was deeply involved and suspected of all manner of underhand projects, from embezzlement to spying for the Germans, whether or not anything involving himself, Oakes and Venegren were sketchy enough to need covering up, has never been proven either way. Undoubtedly, the Duke did want the case cleared up quickly, hence the reason he called in outside police help in the first place. However, a more likely explanation was that the Duke simply wanted to avoid any embarrassment for the case that was bound to bring an international spotlight upon the Bahamas. Then there is the theory that the Duke simply wanted de Marigny out of the way as a form of revenge, given that he seemed to have held quite a strong grudge towards him. The reasons for this are, once more, given as many, from the possibility that de Marigny had been overly friendly with the Duke's wife, to the fact that he was a known playboy around the island, and even suspected of date-raping a string of women. This is backed up by the fact that the jury, whilst acquitting de Marigny, still recommended that he be removed from the island. Why had they suggested such a thing? Many suggest that it was due to his reputation amongst the more conservative population that he was an insolent, amoral sort that needed moving along. One of the more out-there theories that similarly never truly gained any traction was the attempts to tie the murder to a voodoo ritual, mainly centred on the reports that feathers were found on the body, and whilst it has absolutely no bearing in truth, and no more evidence to back it than was previously mentioned, it is still often touted as a theory, alongside another equally spurious claim, that the murder had been an organised mafia hit. This theory goes that certain mafia interests were planning to build a casino in Nassau, which was all well and good, however, gambling was supposedly illegal at the time of the murder. Christie, with his ties to bootlegging, whiskey and rum in the 30s, is of course instigated as the mafia's inside man, and the Duke was naturally on board. Oakes, it seems, was the only man with no interest in the plan, and thus he needed to be removed. Barker and Melchon are suggested to have been in the pay of the Mafia and therefore compliant and a boat was supposedly sailed from Miami to the Bahamas by a crew of mobsters with a plan to kill. It's an interesting theory, however it falls short in several key places. 
Firstly, that it wasn't actually illegal to gamble at all at the time. At least, not for tourists. In fact, Oakes himself was known to have had a flutter from time to time, which throws into question the reason why he would have been so against the plan in the first place. As for the ship sailing into the Bahamas, it seems unlikely. A mystery ship was spotted by a few witnesses in the days surrounding the murder, but it was never tied to any mobsters. Perhaps the most likely suggestion to the whole theory is that Barker and Melchon were mafia men, which, whilst never proven, it was certainly true that the Miami Police Department was severely corrupt at the time and very much in the pocket of the mob. Like the voodoo theory, however, the mafia ties are complicated and intriguing, but ultimately fall short very quickly once serious questions are asked. But what about Harold Christie? How was it that he'd been asleep just 20 yards away from the attack and never woke by any sounds of a scuffle, despite the evidence suggesting that the murder had been a violent and noisy affair? Were the rumours true that he was covering for an affair, or was it more than that? Some theories suggest that Christie owed Oakes a considerable sum of money, and with Oakes planning to move away from the Bahamas, possibly to Mexico, he was bound to call in his debts. The fact that he was visibly nervous whilst giving his testimony in the court is often cited as further evidence of his guilt. His behaviour was certainly suspicious, and Christie himself offered the opinion that his testimony had sounded implausible. Suspicious as he was, however, all evidence against him is purely remains purely circumstantial. Whether or not de Marigny was truly guilty remains an unanswered question. On the one hand, one thing is almost certain, and it falls in favour of de Marigny, that the fingerprint evidence, just as the defence suggested, was almost definitely falsified. In his statements, de Marigny insisted that he hadn't been to Westbourne for two years before the murder, and if he had not killed Oakes, then his fingerprint being on any item in the house would have been impossible. The fact that the print was never photographed in situ was considered by experts as being too perfect and had been bungled and lied about in statements by Melchon and Barker. It all just goes to create far too much suspicion on their part. Was the print lifted from a drinking glass used by de Marigny during his initial questioning at the mansion or simply taken from his fingerprint samples given to the police that same day? One thing is clear and that's that it could not have come from the Chinese screen as was claimed. On the other hand, going against de Marigny is the fact that in his earlier statements it was uncovered that his entire alibi, that he had spoken with his good friend de Vissolo concerning his cat at the time that he was suspected of being at Westbourne murdering Oakes, had not been quite so clear-cut as the defence insisted. In fact, initially, de Vissolo appeared to have not mentioned the story to the police at all until de Marigny had reminded him about the cat story on the day after the murder. Was this story an entire work of fiction conspired by the pair in order for de Vissolo to cover for him? And all of this still leaves huge questions. What was the murder weapon? It had been suggested that it was a mining pick, a boat winch, a conch shell and a piece of unidentified piping, but no weapon has ever surfaced. Why had the murderer set the body on fire? Had he intended for the flames to take down the entire room and all evidence with it, or was the fire put out intentionally before it could destroy any part of the house? One answer might suggest the killer had been sloppy in covering his tracks, whilst the other might suggest that he was killed by someone with much to gain from the death, the house being just the start, and they were loath to cause it any damage before they inherited it. Over the years, there have been several deaths related to those who were involved with the case, or threats made against those who were investigating it privately, that many have pointed to in order to further the conspiracy. But once more, like so much in this case, all the evidence remains purely circumstantial. Once touted as the murder case of the century, the Oaks murder has remained a mystery for almost 80 years, though since the 60s and 70s, the case has slowly slipped into obscurity. Though it holds a lasting legacy in the Bahamas, to those outside the islands, it has been almost entirely forgotten. Despite this, it's a story that is mired in suspicion, fueled by characters with ties to the British royalty, the Nazi party, tales of voodoo, mobsters, spies and lost gold. Just how much of it is true, however, has become more and more difficult to ascertain as the years go by and though certain files, reports and investigations continue to be made public regarding many of the characters involved, 
Nothing ever seems to become any clearer, and so the question remains, as it always has. Who was it that killed Sir Harry Oakes? So that was the unsolved murder of Sir Harry Oakes. Thanks very much for listening. We'll talk a little bit about this because um, there's a lot to talk about, or at least a lot to point you if you're interested in in in, in a further direction. Um, after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids, and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. Welcome back, and thanks very much for listening. So yeah, this story, like I said, there's a lot lot a lot going on and it's an incredibly complicated story and the characters in it have such a complicated interwoven story that it was quite difficult to put into this episode actually because obviously I I want to be as thorough as I can be with, with my episodes but at the same time so many of these characters and so many of their relationships if I'd have written them all out it, I think it would have just become really overly complex and too confusing given the, the time restraints of the episodes so yeah I figured I'd sort of talk a little bit about that now and, and point you in the direction of a couple of books if you're interested in sort of following this up definitely say worth following up to get the real ins and outs of, of all the kind of weird relationships between the people because ultimately it was you know a bunch of rich people being rich people in suspicious circumstances as you might imagine you know like so basically they were all had dodgy fingers in dodgy pies all around the world uh, you know oaks definitely had money in like mexican banks and investment firms and the duke was sketchy as all hell and christie harold christie was definitely sketchy and all of these people had like so many relationships there was affairs everywhere in typical kind of rich people fashion you know they're all kind of sleeping with each other so it gets really complex as to who was kind of sleeping with who and who owed who money and, and all this it, it's definitely a, a really interesting kind of cons- story full of conspiracy so i, I definitely recommend reading uh, a, a book called a serpent in eden by james owen um that was written in 2008 and, and that that is goes really well into the story and i think does so in quite it's quite it's not such an academic book it's quite easy to read um and, it, and he, he goes into the story quite quite well and, and it from quite a, a third sort of outsider's perspective, which I quite liked. He was quite um, absent from it, despite the fact that he actually did have personal ties to the case. Well, not so much to the case, but to the area at the time. But yet he's, he managed to write the book in, in quite a detached way. Um, so I definitely recommend that. Say so that's called a serpent. I mean, the links will, or you know, check the sources and you'll, you'll see it anyway. But yeah, it's called A Serpent in Eden um, by James Owen. Um, and another book that I thought was quite interesting that you can get for free online was called The History of the, a History of the Bahamas by Michael Creighton. And that was really interesting because it goes really into the, the entire history of the Bahamas, as you might imagine from the title. But that's really interesting, A, because the Bahamas has a really fascinating history. But once you get to the, the Oaks chapter, that also gives you an, an awful lot of background about who was doing what with whom at the time. So that's definitely worth reading as well, I think. Even if you just sort of skip, just just read the chapter that deals with the the, the kind of Oaks era, because there is actually a full-on chapter that's just the Oaks era. So you, you can just read that. But yeah, I definitely recommend those two books if you wanted to follow it up. One of the things that I found really weird was that one of the newspapers ran essentially a fictional account using the character of Perry Mason, who's obviously a fictional detective, right? 
but they were reporting it on the front page as if it was like legitimate news. So that the head type, the, the headlines would be like Perry Mason finds, I don't know, like a piece of evidence or Perry Mason thinks this or Perry Mason is seeking the motives of the Marini and stuff like this. And, and then they, it was like a fictionalized account of what was going on, but it was so weird because it, at no point was it like sort of written like, I mean, it was just weird. It was just really weird. I've never seen anything like it. So that was really bizarre. But yeah, otherwise, I mean, I've, so I, I said about reading those other books and I've read a couple of other books that I perhaps wouldn't recommend so much, but I, I've read all that. And, and, and now I'm sitting here thinking, you know, I should give my, my impression, you know, my, my opinion on what I think happened. And I, I've read all that and I, I, I don't know. I, I truly don't know. Um, I don't think it was Demarini. One thing I do for sure think is that they they forged the 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 the, the fingerprint evidence. That's that's a guarantee. Like I I can guarantee that that happened, or you know as close to guarantee as you can get. Like that that's pretty much been all but proven. Um, there's just so much. There's just too much suspicion behind the detectives and everything that was going on. And I think it's fairly well proven. I don't think it was Demarini and. And I, I do think that he was framed. But who buys an interesting one? Because one would assume that it's the Duke. Because basically, De Marigny was not really a suspect. He was kind of a suspect, but not really. They'd only questioned him once. They'd let him go, you know, free after the questioning. So they, they, they hadn't arrested him or anything. And then a few hours passed. And in those few hours, they spoke to the Duke of Windsor and... Then they arrested him. So what did the Duke of Windsor say in those few hours? That's where you want to be a fly on the wall, right? Because that would uncover, I think, everything. Because if the Duke of Windsor did frame him, then why did he do such a thing? You know, that's where you get the real kind of conspiracy start coming out and the real kind of tinfoil hat kind of theories. Because, I mean, this really goes from like, you know, tinfoil hat territory all the way to stuff which I think is probably quite plausible, but I, but but where it gets really tough is, is is unraveling which is which, you know, like which is fictional, which is nonsense, which has become like legend over the years, and and the problem with it all is like say all these relationships, you know, like 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 everyone was having an affair with everyone by the looks of things, and and so it really. That, that really complicates matters as well. So I don't have a clue who killed him. I, I, I think probably he, he was assassinated. But my, the reason for assassination is I, I, I don't know. There seems to be that he has a lot of reasons, really. He was quite well liked here in the local area and he was quite respected and all the rest of it. So I don't think it was anything like any sort of personal vendetta. I do think it was probably some sort of business thing. Because he, he did have, say, like a lot of fingers and a lot of dodgy pies. So I think probably he was assassinated due to some sort of sketchy business dealing. As for who assassinated him, I, I just have no idea. But the Duke definitely leaves it open to suspicion. But the problem is, is the Duke obviously had other reasons really to get it framed. and to, or Not necessarily even to frame him, but the Duke had a lot of reasons to get it covered up. Um, or get it solved quickly at least. You can definitely say that the Duke had a lot of reasons to solve the case quickly because I didn't go into it in the episode, but there was actually uh, an incident like a, a year previous that had like basically kind of embarrassed the police. It was a bunch of riots and it had basically kind of embarrassed the local police and shown that they were kind of incompetent and, and undermanned and, and all the rest of it. And I, I think the Duke wouldn't have wanted this to dig up that past again. I think he wanted it to be solved quickly, which is why he brought in the Miami police, which, he, you know, another thing was that he he would have brought in Scotland Yard, but it was just too far away and it would have taken too long. So he, he got the Miami police instead. So I think there is good reason for him to bring in the Miami police. Like the bah Bahamas police force was stretched like painfully thin over a really big area. They had like three cars, like three police cars across the, all the Bahamas. They had like a, a force that was just far too thin. Um, so, I, you know, it was basically like underpowered, understaffed, undermanned, under everything, basically. Like, you know, it didn't have 
nearly anything it needed. So I do think bringing in the like the, the Miami police for such an important case because it would have been seen as important by the press, you know, with it being the murder of someone rich. I think that's fair enough on his part. I think that's totally natural to want the case to, to be resolved in in quite a professional, prompt manner, right? And of course, it wouldn't have done him any favor. Um, it wouldn't have done him any favors if it if it wasn't solved like, quickly because he was the governor, right? So in a way, like he had a responsibility to get it done. So I, I I think he did have a reason to bring in those police other than to frame Demarini. But I also think that gives him quite a strong reason to frame Demarini. And that I wonder if that was the conversation that they had between the interview of Demarini and his arrest later that day. Because the only thing that also was said to have happened during those few hours was the retrieval of his print from the screen. But but like I say, that, that print, once you go over a lot of the evidence, it, it, it's, it's almost guaranteed to be fake. So that is sort of a moot point in the arrest. Which leads you back to the Duke. What did he say in that meeting? Maybe he said nothing and maybe it's all tinfoil hat conspiracy. I don't know. You tell me. You can contact me at contact at darkhistories.com. The email will be in the show notes, as will be every other way you can contact me, which is all through social media. So yeah, get in touch. Let me know what you think. If you would like to say, get hold of me on social media, any of that sort of stuff, you're probably best bet. It's all in the show notes, but also uh, darkhistories.com. You'll find everything there, including all the ways that you can support the show if you would like to do so. You absolutely don't feel obliged to do so. If you would like to leave reviews and stuff, that would be cool. But if not, no worries. Thanks very much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks this time. I should be pretty well clear of not catching COVID again now. So yeah, episode in two weeks. Thanks very much for listening to this one. I'll be back real soon. Until then, take care. Sleep tight. (laughs) 